Today we're closing out this series called I Was Made for This. And I'm going to do just a quick recap of where we've been and then we're going to get right into the message and move pretty quickly today. On the first week we discovered that we are made from God, we're made to be with God, and we're made to express love to God. That's true worship. Worshiping God in spirit and in truth means loving and living for God instead of ourselves. To lose our life and find real life in God. And as we love him, he works all things together for our good, and we come away with a destiny as big as God himself. And then in the last two weeks, we looked at five reasons worship matters. Number one, God is worthy. So he's the most high God. Number two, I'm a worshiper, so I better be making sure that I spend my worshiping life worshiping the one true God. There's a war over my worship. I become what I worship. And then worship is fuel for the soul. It does something for me, it's good for me. The psalmist says it's good to sing praise to the Lord and praise is becoming. It looks good on you and it fuels your soul. You see the spirit of heaviness and despair start to lift and the spirit of God begin to fall. But we've exchanged God for other things in our life and it's causing problems in our life. And the Apostle Paul writes about uh, this exchange that we've made in Romans chapter 1. I'm going to call it the not so great exchange. Verse 21, he says, for although they knew God, so this verse is addressed to those who claim to know God. It's addressed to the church. It's addressed to Christians. They knew God, but they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened, saying they got fixated on things other than God. So they were in the dark, and although they claimed to be wise, I know what I'm doing, I know what's best for me, I know what's best for my family, my finances, for my life, I got this figured out. I'm wise. They became fools and exchanged. They exchanged God for something else, and every time we do that in our life, it doesn't work out. Just look around, and we'll see that in our wisdom, we're actually fools, Because we've exchanged God for what we think is best. We've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. And maybe you say, Ryland, I don't have any reptile statues in my house. I don't have any golden calves in my house. It's just talking about anything in your life that you've placed above God's will, God's ways, God's word. Maybe it's not in the form of a golden calf or something like that, but It's just something on the throne of our hearts that we overvalue. So here's five examples or five things that we've exchanged. And these just hit me right between the eyes. The first one, it's not even the real thing. It's just uh, the substitution. It's just whatever it is for you. Maybe you write the real thing in the blank. Well, don't do that because your friend is watching your paper. So just write in substitution. But know that we all have this thing. That it creeps in and it creeps up and all of a sudden we've exchanged loving God for this thing. God wants us to enjoy that thing maybe, but it's just overtaking your schedule. It's overtaking your thinking. You've exchanged God for it. Deuteronomy 6 says, do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God. And this isn't jealousy like God mopes around when you don't give him the attention he wants and... You know, God isn't lonely. He doesn't need you. He's not bored without you. But he did make you. And he says, man, I wish you'd shout that way for me. 
I wish you'd get fired up about my mission like you get fired up about that thing. Man, I wish you'd show up four hours early for me. I wish you'd raise your hands in victory for me. Man, I wish you'd give to me with the commitment that you give that thing or that you sacrifice to that thing. And does he mind you having it? No, this is not a poverty theology that says you can't have anything or enjoy anything to follow Christ. But you can't have anything above him. Number two is pride. And what I mean by pride is in your heart, you wanted to worship God, but you cared too much what people think. And we're so concerned, you know, when we come into corporate worship, we just think every eye is on us and everybody's looking at me. So we just put on the groomsman pose and we're just too cool for school and just kind of survive the service with everyone looking at us. Nobody's looking at you. No one's care what you're doing. We think we're so concerned with what other people think. But here we come being concerned what God thinks. John 12 says, Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved praise from men more than praise from God. Let it not be true of us. Let it not be true of us. Man, I really wanted to worship. I really wanted to get fired up about God. I really wanted to be excited about God. I really wanted to tell God I loved Him. But I really wanted to tell that person that Christ loves them. I wanted to witness, but let that not be true of us. Let pride not get in our way. Number three is hedonism. Hedonism is the belief that pleasure or happiness is the goal of life. So you measure how you're supposed to live based on how you feel. So you don't have morals, you just have feelings. And you don't have choices, you don't have feelings. Don't judge me, this is how I feel. And we live in a hedonistic society. Feelings are everything. But that's really not a beneficial way to live. It's not even beneficial to us because we can't trust our feelings. Now feelings are wonderful. In fact, I don't think there's really you know, anything much better than being in a worship service and feeling the presence of God. And sometimes we talk about that or sometimes we sing about that. But that's not the goal. We're, here, we're not here to give anybody a feeling. We're here to worship God and give Him what He deserves whether we feel it or not. He's the audience. You're not the audience. I know it's easy to get confused because you're sitting in rows of chairs and you're looking at a stage and, well, I'm the audience. Now just do me a favor. Lift your hands for a second, everybody in here. And just shake that off like you got a booger on your hand and you're getting rid of it. We prepare a worship service for you to come in and give God your worship. He's the audience of one. You're not the audience. God is the audience. We're all part of the cast. Hebrews 13, 15 says, through Jesus, through Jesus. i got to stop right there because this sums up our entire theology of worship. It's through Jesus. If you want God's will for your life, you find it by worshiping and obeying Jesus. If you want what the Holy Spirit has for you, you find it in becoming like Christ. He's the fullness of the Godhead. He's made visible to us. So through Jesus, therefore, let us not wait till we feel it, but continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. I'm not waiting till I feel. I'm going to give it no matter what. In fact, it's better when it costs me something because then it's a sacrifice of praise. The fruit of lips that openly profess his name. They openly profess his name. Maybe you say, man, I don't worship that way. It's just not my personality. 
Well, what if it's God's personality? You know, I don't love you based on what I like. I love you based on what you like. I got to find your love language and love you in that way. So what if it's God's love language to openly profess his name? Number four, and I just came up with a word here, it's spectatorism. (laughs) This one says, yes, I I worshiped if I just showed up. I can just watch and that counts. You know, church worship services often resemble watching football on TV. A hundred million people needing exercise, watching 22 people who desperately need rest. (laughs) I thought that was a lot funnier than it really was, I guess. (laughs) This is why we just make no apology for asking you to get involved here. Now hear this. I I don't want to see you get worn out or burnt out or or make, you know, ministry and serving the most high thing. but, But let me tell you, everybody else and every other organization, you know what they want? They want your time. They want your money. These businesses out here, they want your money. All the credit card companies want is all your money. Your job wants all your time. I mean, you spend all day there, they give you work to take home, and then you got to make brownies because it's somebody's birthday. And the sports leagues, they want multiple practices a week. They want you to travel, and then they schedule games on Sunday morning. And I hear pastors say, man, our society, we just struggle with commitment. No, we don't. We're committed to anything and everything. We're giving to anything and everything. And then the church is supposed to apologize because you come in here just tapped out. You got nothing left, no time left. We're supposed to apologize for asking you to give in Jesus' name and worship in Jesus' name and serve in Jesus' name and fellowship in Jesus' name. I realize I'm stepping on some toes today. This is my last week. I'm done after this for a while. You'll be done with me. It'll be fine. There's a line in the book of James. It says, come close to God and God will come close to you. Some of you here waiting on God. God made his move. He made his move when he came from heaven to earth to die your death, to be close to you. The ball's in your court. It's your move. It's my move. Let me ask you this. If if you were to seek getting closer to God for this next month, for this month of April, would your life be better? Yeah, it would. Of course it would. So what do we do? We make the move. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. Number five, another thing we've exchanged for loving God, it's tradition. And this is going to shock some of you, but I absolutely love hymns. I read hymns in my quiet time. I, I love listening to them. My favorite album right now is this acapella album of chants and hymns. But did you know that traditions can get in the way? Can, they can replace God? I got to have pews. I got to have stained glass. I got to have this certain Bible translation. God likes it better. He really does. We don't worship the method. We just worship the God. We've got to be careful not to adore the traditions, more than we love God. Jesus himself dealt with this one in Matthew 15. Jesus replied, why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? So these people were fussing at the disciples because they weren't worshiping through the customs. And Jesus is saying, you're worshiping the customs. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. 
You hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings, they're just merely human rules. So if those things aren't, aren't what God wants, then what is it? What does God really want? Violin, do you want me to sing and clap? Well, that's really the overflow that comes from giving God what he really wants. And I think this is a question we all ask in some form at some time in our life. That's why I titled the message today, What God Really Wants. And we find what God really wants multiple times in Scripture, but here in Psalm 50, it's a, it's a prophetic psalm. It stands out uh, from a lot of the others because while David wrote it down, it's really God speaking. And God says, Psalm 50, I have no complaint about your sacrifices or the burnt offerings you constantly offer. Well, good thing, because you're the one who told us to do it. God instituted an animal sacrifice system, and that's what they were under. But God comes along and he says, I do not need the bulls from your barns or the goats from your pens. He says, thank you, I, I told you to do it, but you're giving me something I already have. I didn't really need it. For all the animals of the forest are mine. So before you brought it to the altar and killed it, it it was mine. Now I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird on the mountains and all the animals of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I, I wouldn't tell you. For all the world is mine and everything in it. Do I eat the meat of bulls? Do I drink the blood of goats? And it's setting up the question, okay, then what don't you have? then what do you really want? And you could say it this way, worshiping God is giving God something he doesn't have. You might say, Ryland, God has everything. He could have, but he gave something away. He could have controlled it if he wanted to, but he gave it away so that we would willingly offer it to him. Here are those things. He says, make thankfulness your sacrifice to God. And keep the vows you made to the Most High. He says, I want a new level in our relationship. Then call on me when you're in trouble. Next time you're in trouble, I love if I were the one you talk to. You run around, you're talking to everybody else. Come to me. And I will rescue you. And you will give me glory. So what does God want? We just pull it right out of that passage. He wants me to thank him with my sincere affection. There's a direct correlation between your appreciation of grace and your expression of worship. I'll say that again. There's a direct correlation between your appreciation of grace and your expression of worship. When I have a a little expression of worship, it means I have little appreciation of grace. You know like when you go to a kid's birthday party and there's all the presents there and everything and they open up a box and they get clothes And they kind of say like this rehearsed line, like, thank you so much for the clothes. (laughs) And they just stand there at the smile, paste it on. And then you give them, they get something they really wanted. What do they do? Man, their heart rate goes up. They're giving out hugs. They're saying thank you a million times. I love you, I love you, I love you. And the same is true for us. We need to understand this gift that we have been given. We need to understand this grace gift that we have been given. And we need to understand really where we are without Jesus Christ. You know, the law, the law given to us in the Old Testament reveals this to us. 
The law was never meant to be something that if you kept it, you could get into heaven. In fact, in the book of Exodus where the Ten Commandments are given, the whole book never even mentions heaven. The law is like this. I I don't know, maybe if you've ever gotten blood work done or maybe an MRI or an x-ray or something like that, and you get the results, and if they're negative, you're given a cure, hopefully. And the law is like that MRI or that x-ray that reveals you're not going to make it. And there's nothing you can do about it. And you say, you get the results, you may say, well, what, what quick can I do? How can I get healthy? What good can I do? What good work can I do? What could I do to have a right standing with God? Nothing. Like you were dead before you even got the results. And there's nothing you can do to save yourself. Paul tells us even if we were to, to follow the law to the letter, we'd still be fallen. We still wouldn't have a right standing with God. There's nothing you can do. But Jesus is the cure. And God doesn't give you a list of ways to get back to him. He didn't just send you some 10 tips to get back on the pathway. He gave you God himself. And the gospel is that God saves you. It's a gift from God. You can't take credit for it. It's not a reward for anything you've done. No one can boast about it. I mean, do we really think that we have so much leverage that, oh, there's something I could give to God where now all of a sudden he owes me salvation? Like there's something I could do where God owes me? No, but Jesus steps in and gives us a free gift and dies once and for all for every sin, for every person, fully absorbs the penalty and the disease once and for all for us. And now God's not mad at you. He loves you and he desires that you believe this good news, that you get in on it, that you accept the gift, that you open it up and you receive it and you thank him sincerely, that you understand you're dead without him. You're not making it without him. And this isn't some trite thank you. This leads us to number two. This is I offer you the control of my life. So when you believe this good news, it's not a one-time decision. It's not like you just walk an aisle once or just raise your hand once and it's over. Now, those aren't bad things. I'm going to give you an opportunity to raise your hand at the end of this message. Say, it's just a, a symbol to say, I believe it. I'm in. But that's the beginning. Jesus says no one lights a lamp and puts it under their bed and hides it. No, they put it on a lampstand. It illuminates the house. It's a vow, it says in Psalms, that God wants you to keep. No, it's not an expectation that you'll be perfect and won't sin against God. But it's a decision made so deeply within you that it produces some repentance. And we get so freaked out about this word repentance. And it just means that you've, you've turned it around. You've turned your mind around. You've changed directions. I was on this path. I was going this way. I was going this way. Whoa, God got a hold of me. I believe. I'm going this way. I'm going this way. And you turn it around. It's a desire now to obey God. It's a desire to follow his ways. Let me just say it this way. If you have no desire to obey God, you're not a believer. If you find no delight in God's ways and have no conviction to follow them, it means you didn't really accept the gift. It means you really didn't begin to believe. 
Now hear that in the context of what I said. Your obedience isn't what saves you. And if you mess up, you don't lose God's saving power within you. But if there's just flat out no desire to walk in God's ways, and you're not convicted when you abandon him or when you sin against him, then you don't have Christ in you. And repentance says, I'm on a new path. I'm running a new race here. And God will sustain me to the end. It's God who started this work within me. And I may fall, I may stumble, but God's going to get me back up. And I'm more than a conqueror. None of these sins, none of, these, none of my falling is going to, to keep me down. God's going to be faithful to finish this work within me. I offer him the control of my life. I surrender my will to his. Who, he who began this will finish it and carry it to completion. Number three, I include him in my daily life. You can easily tell if you understand and believe the gospel. Because someone who understands and believes the gospel runs to God instead of from God when they blow it. When they mess up, they run to God. God says, call on me when you're in trouble. And when you've blown it, do you run to God or from God? Do you run from the church or to the church? When you doubt, do you take that as your cue to exit? Or do you lean in to God's saving power, God's saving you and keeping you? People who understand the gospel understand that it's God who saves them. And it's God who keeps them. The same power that rose Christ from the dead is saving you and keeping you. And it's God who finishes the work in them. So you make God part of your daily life. Now, we've got the, uh, such a cool thing today. James, come on up. We've got a testimony uh, here today of someone's journey. And let's give a warm Rockbrook welcome to James. Come on. Yeah. It's such an opportunity to be in front of you and to, to share my testimony of my faith in Jesus Christ. I've been attending Rockbrook now for about four years with my beautiful wife, Bobby, and our four children, Justin, Jake, J.R., and Caitlin. And uh, the last four years has been quite an experience, and uh, my life story may be very similar to some of your life experiences or where you may even be today. I was born in Jacksonville, Florida at the Naval Air Station, August 17, 1957. Both of my parents were on their second marriage when I came into the world, but I was a very, very active, sometimes overactive, fun-loving boy that really didn't want to face the reality that there were some pretty rocky days ahead of me. My mother always provided me with love, guidance, and leadership, and discipline, and was very understanding as she bore the burden of raising me and my three siblings, primarily on her own. Dad's uh, career in the Navy found him often uh, attached to aircraft carriers or TAC fleet uh, and would be gone for a long, long time, uh, most of his Navy career. One time I remember he came home from a 10-month cruise only to be summoned the very next day. I remember the officers coming to the, the house and literally helping him pack his sea bag. And uh, we weren't told where he was going or how long uh, he would be gone. Uh, 
A few days later, our nation uh, was alerted about the crisis in Cuba with the missiles. Mom miscarried. I lost a baby brother that uh, one day I'll see. And she was an absolute nervous wreck. Her drinking and abuse of prescription drugs compounded very quickly. And she no longer tried to hide it from us kids like she did in the past. Interestingly enough, my father also had a drinking problem, but now knowing what I know, it really was no surprise because after all, he was the the son of a very famous whiskey maker and bootlegger from Kentucky. He joined the Navy to escape the family business, but unfortunately, his drinking followed him. Months later, Dad returned home, but sadly, Mom needed more help than any one of us or as a family could give her and she was placed in a mental hospital for 90 days, and we weren't allowed to see her at all during that time. She went through a vigorous therapy program, including electric shock. Dad was able to take extended leave while Mom was in the hospital, and when he was able to bring her home, he, he started taking the whole family to church, and he told me that he wished he never quit going to church when he first entered the Navy. We continued to go to church every time the door was open, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday night, prayer meetings, revivals, overnight singings. When the doors were open, we were there. This habit continued even when Dad went to officer school and other uh, sea cruises. Before my ninth birthday, I had seen such a radical change in my mother She told me what had happened. She had gotten saved, and I saw her get baptized. Even the change in my father was huge. I didn't really understand it all, but I sure liked it. On a Wednesday night church service in the boys' group, at the end of the lesson, our teacher asked us to bow our heads and then asked us to raise our hands if we wanted to get saved. My hand shot up immediately. I was a hurting boy. But the changes in in the life of my parents so impressed me that I knew that's something I wanted. I was baptized the following month. At a summer youth camp when I was 14, an invitation was given there also, but this time to surrender our lives to the service of God. I most certainly had no objections to that. After all, the last seven years of my life was just unbelievably fun being involved in church and living the Christian life. I started providing church service at a state facility for the mentally mentally challenged several times a month, and shortly thereafter, I was actually licensed by my church into the gospel ministry at age 15. In high school, I was a a three-sport letterman, very active in the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and was also the president of our Youth for Christ Club. After community college, I attended Calvary Bible College for one year and then went to Christ Unlimited Bible Institute and graduated with a perfect 4.0 grade average and was a class president. Later in life, I became a chaplain, served first at I-70 Speedway, and through my position with Fast Track Ministry, there was one opportunity to actually preach in front of over 5,000 race fans at Talladega Motor Speedway. 
For nearly 50 years, I had the perception of being a Christian success story. The truth is, about a year and a half, I really began to struggle with my position in Christ. Seeing the fruit of the Spirit grow daily in the life of my wife seemed to just aggravate me more and more each day. Though I could sense the wooing of the Holy Spirit, it seemed to get fainter and fainter each day that went by. Last December, I got very sick and was in bed at home for over a week. The days that I felt like getting out of bed, I found myself lying on the couch resting and watching Christian faith-based movies on Netflix. My mind was kind of confused, but in my heart, I knew that I didn't have a right position in God, as I really had never surrendered my life to him. Remember the Transform series that Pastor Kelly led us through here recently? After one of those sermons, Pastor Kelly greeted me right there at those double doors, and as he always did, he asked me, James, how are you doing today? And I said, I'm getting transformed. Those were perhaps the most truthful words that I had ever spoken in my life. Boy, howdy, talk about a one-two spiritual punch to my gut. I kept thinking about that Wednesday night when I got saved as a young boy in those years living the Christian life. I also remember the time that my high school debate coach advised me before going into the championship regional that some of the judges there didn't have as much experience in my type of debate at this level. But when it came time to present my case, if I couldn't make it, fake it. That was winning advice as far as debate. I won the championship, but sadly, that became the very way I lived my life. Last winter, as I yielded to the wooing of the Holy Spirit, I came to the absolute end of myself and allowed him total freedom to expose every area of my heart. What I saw for the first time was the ugliness of my sin, the beauty of the sacrifice that Christ gave for my sins, and the shame that I felt in faking it for all of those years. When I was a young boy giving intellectual assent to the idea of being saved didn't give me position in God, no more than if I had slept in the garage for 50 years being transformed miraculously into an automobile. For the first time in my life, I was really totally honest with myself and with God. I realized that I was lost in sin and that I'd never asked Jesus Christ to be my personal Savior and my Lord. Realizing that making heaven was not possible by holding on to the spiritual coattails of someone else's faith, that there was only one true and righteous God and he couldn't be faked out, and one day he would be the final judge of all mankind. In the quietness of those moments in my home last December, I accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior, and I can tell you most most assuredly that upon completion of that very simple prayer of repentance, acceptance, and commitment, I knew in my spirit instantaneously that I was truly born again and that my sins were forgiven 
and that my position in God was now secured through Jesus Christ and him alone. I knew that the next step was to make a public profession of my decision and to follow that with public baptism. My wife thought she married a fine, upstanding Christian man. How could I tell her that my life up to that point had been an absolute fraud, a fake, and a forgery? Would she still somehow love me? I shared my conversion experience with Pastor Tom. I had grown close to him and found that his testimony was very much like my life story. So in between services, I approached him, shared with him what had happened, and in the sweetest tears a man has ever shared with me, he said, I am so glad to have you as a brother in Christ. Of course she'll be okay. Just tell her just like you told me. And I did, and then my children, and then the church, and then I was rightfully baptized. How about that? It took me 50 years, but I moved from a false perception to a right position, a right standing with God and a personal relationship that gets sweeter every day. I look forward to being a servant of God for the next 57 years sharing my life's purpose right here in the community of Rockbook Church and fulfilling the great commission that God has given all of us. Romans 3.23 tells us that for James Gregory sinned and fell short of the glory of God. I'm going to personalize these because I want you to see how they they ministered to my spirit. John 3.16 told me that God so loved me that he gave his only begotten son that if I believed in him, I would not perish, but have everlasting life. God loves us more than our intellect will ever be able to explain or quantify. Second Corinthians 5.17 tells us, Therefore, if a man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. This is the hope that I have that will promote spiritual growth, maturity, in change in attitude of service and availability. 1 Corinthians 9.24 Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you will win. We must run like a well-conditioned and trained athlete who will give up personal interest in order to put in the needed time to train, gain experience, and have the mindset of a winner, not just a weekly jogger. Revelations 3.21, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down, on my, sat down with my father on his throne. Like me, you may have a false perception that spiritually all is well in your soul, when in fact that may not be the case. Have you really accepted Christ's gift of salvation? And, if, and if, if you're not sure, think carefully as this will determine where you will spend the rest of your life. Salvation is through Jesus Christ. That's the only way to gain, to gain a rightful position in God. Serving God with a purpose on earth will gain us reward in heaven and it will help keep you in the joy of your salvation. We will be satisfied beyond all human understanding 
by being in the very presence of God for all eternity. Thank you very much. So uh, continuing on in the book of Revelation, uh, the angel of the Lord seven times speaks to seven churches to give final messages. It's, it's Jesus' final message to his church. And the first church he addresses, first thing he goes through, is a message that should be our message today. To the church at Ephesus, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. See, you obviously thought that's what I wanted. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. Good job on that one. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. When the tough got going, you stayed strong. That's good. Yet, I hold this against you. You've forsaken the love you had at first. You forgot what I made you for. In the midst of your life, you missed the point. You got distracted. You forgot what true worship is, to love the Lord your God. This is huge to God. To enjoy his love, to share it with others. I just love God. He gives us the steps back. You know, the devil condemns you and gives you no way back, no way to fix it. God says, here's where you got off track. Here's how to come back home. Come back home. Here's how you get over here. He says, consider how far you have fallen. Or maybe remember what it was like before. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. This is why I love being around people who just got saved or getting baptized because I just want to live every day of my life like I just got saved yesterday. And when I do that, I remember the gospel is about how God loved me first and God chose me first. And my response is, how can I love you back? What can I do for you? Not trying to earn God's approval, but celebrating his approval. Celebrating the right standing I have with God. And maybe today, instead of confessing all the things that you're going to do for God, you just need to confess God's love for you. And maybe you've been in a moment like this before and you made it all about how I'm not going to do this sin anymore. And I can, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to turn this around. This is not that moment. This moment is God loves you. And God made a way for you. Maybe instead of confessing all the things you're going to do for him, just now confess God's love for you. Let's pray together. Every head bowed. Not a lot of moving around yet. Just stop and ask yourself this question. Where's God? Chances are if you're in church, he's on your list. But is he at the top? Is he the most high? Salvation is when you organize your list with him at the top. And Romans says if you confess Jesus as Lord, you'll be saved. 
And I want to encourage you to do that today. If you've resonated with this message, in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to be bold and raise your hand. It's just a small action to say, I believe it, I'm in. I receive his love. I receive the gift. Or maybe you've walked with God for years, but you've lost how it felt at first. And you want to remember and come back to God in a special way. You were close, but you're not today. You want to be close with God again. With every head bowed, if that's you, either understanding and believing for the first time or returning to your first love, Jesus Christ, would you just be bold and raise your hand right now? Leave it up. Amen. Leave it up. Let me pray this for you. God, I thank you for your grace and forgiving me. We thank you for making a way where there was no way. We offer our lives to you. We surrender to you. We worship you. You are the most high God. We turn to you and we run home. We run to you. You can put your hand down. It's through Jesus' name we pray. It's through Jesus' name we worship. It's through Jesus' name we praise God. Amen.